Gracious God, grant that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, all that we offer to you now in faith and praise and throughout this time together, that they may be a blessing unto you, a joy, a source of joy, and that the hearts of your people may be emboldened and lives empowered as disciples of Christ. Amen. So just a closer walk with thee. This is what our Lenten journey really is, isn't it? The 40 days of Lent which refigure the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness following his baptism as he struggled to understand what it meant to be Jesus the Messiah. All the questions and the testing that take place in that time is to come to a clearer understanding in his own heart and mind about who he is. What does it mean to be Messiah? In the same way, the 40 days of Lent is the opportunity each year for us to enter into the same kind of wilderness experience, trying and testing and reflecting upon the essential question, what does it mean to be a disciple of the Messiah? He asked, what does it mean to be Messiah? We ask, what does it mean to be a person who actually follows the Messiah? We are disciples of Jesus. We're not customers. We're not members, really, of an organization. In some ways, we do claim membership, but more importantly, deeply into the core, we are disciples of Jesus wherever we are or whatever particular place we join for worship and service and fellowship. We are not customers. We are not consumers of spiritual goods and services. We're not looking out for some kind of spiritual benefit. We are here because we want to follow Jesus. It's a very different idea than a lot of what you'll hear in American Christianity today. Certainly quite different than the wealth and health and prosperity gospels that you could hear on the television almost 24-7. What does it mean? How can I be a disciple of Jesus? In the Gospel of Mark, in the 8th chapter, just before the passage we'll read this morning, Jesus has, had asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And then he asked the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, well, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. And then, at verse 31, he continues. Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, this third person reference that Jesus makes to himself uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark and elsewhere, then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, 
the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. Now let's be clear. It is true that at the time of Jesus, there were a variety of views and understandings of what the Messiah would be and do in that particular historical context. There had been many messiahs, but what was the expectation of a messiah in that day and age? While there was a variety of ideas, it's also fair to say that the vast majority of the people expected that the messiah who would come who had been proclaimed by John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus, the expectation was that the Messiah would drive the Romans into the sea and reestablish the reign of David, the great ancestor, the paragon of the Jewish monarchy, that the Jewish people would indeed again live in their own land. So what Jesus is saying here runs counter to and is antithetical and at the very least problematic to the common expectation about what it means to be the Messiah. He will suffer, says Jesus, and be killed and then rise again. Now, by this point, there's so much cognitive dissonance in the minds of the disciples that you can understand why they didn't really latch on to this last part of the phrase, he will rise again. You can imagine their minds are reeling in the internal dialogue within each of them. Suffer? Betrayed? Killed? What's he talking about? That's not why I left my nets. You can imagine Peter and Andrew, James and John saying, I didn't leave my nets and my father and my good life fishing in Galilee to follow a Messiah who's going to suffer and die and be killed. And so, Peter took Jesus aside. You can imagine him putting his arm around his shoulder and pluffing off to the side and says, Now Jesus and began to rebuke Jesus. Don't say that. That's not what the people want. That's not what the people expect. What are you going to do? We're all going to, we'll lose everybody. Nobody's going to follow a Messiah who's going to be betrayed and killed. What are you thinking? Get with the program. In verse 33, turning and looking at his disciples... Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on mortal things. You are thinking in the terms of earthly power, not heavenly power. Now, this is not the best manner of prompting an open dialogue in a meeting. When you ask people, what do you think? And when they respond, you say, get behind me, Satan. That kind of shuts the dialogue down. He doesn't say, get away from me, Satan. This is one of the important points I always want to make about this story. He says, get behind me, which means follow me. 
He doesn't reject him. He doesn't shunt him to the side. He doesn't expel him from the group. He says, get in the right position. Get behind me to follow me. Because you're thinking in the way the world thinks, but I'm thinking in the way that God thinks. This heavenly understanding of the nature by which the world will be redeemed, saved, not by force of arms, but by the power of love, nonviolent resistance, active nonviolent resistance to evil and injustice. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And Jesus called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, You think it's bad now? Wait till what he says next. If any of you want to become my followers, it's almost as though they're not yet followers. This is a critical moment. They followed him this far, but he says, if you really want to be my followers, then let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now let's be clear. Jesus is not speaking here metaphorically. In fact, when he was a child in Galilee, during one of the great rebellions in the north in his childhood, about the year six or seven of the Common Era, A.D., there had been a massive uprising, and the response of the Romans was to undertake a great sweep of mass arrests and a crucifixion within a one-week period of 2,000 Galilean men and boys. So the idea of taking up your cross and following me is not a metaphor. It's the lived reality of Jesus and his followers who all come from Galilee. The provocative idea of Nikos Katsanzakis, the author of the novel The Last Temptation of Christ, is that Joseph the carpenter and his apprentice son Jesus the carpenter, their principal vocation was in creating crosses for the Romans. 2,000 crosses don't jump out of nowhere. Somebody's got to build them. It's an idea that Katsinzaki said. Take up your cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, the good news, the good news that God is love, those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? This idea that it is out of suffering, the suffering of Jesus in his betrayal and denial and crucifixion, that the life free and full 
foreseen by God in the creative will of Eden from the beginning of time, the vision of God for a truly free creation is in the upending of the prevailing order of the violent imposition of unjust orders by facing it down with the power, the deep power of vulnerability, of living and loving in a way that is willing to sacrifice itself. We talked for a few weeks about Paul's concept of love and his use of the term agape, this self-giving, uninterested, self, non-selfish love, as distinct from eros or philo or phileia or all the others, which are legitimate and good means of love, meanings of love. But in the gospel, the love that we're talking about is this unconditional, non-self-interested love which will give itself for others. So we turn again to the Apostle Paul in his letter, first letter to the Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? A rhetorical question. The wisdom of the world is that Jesus should have raised a band of rebels armed to the teeth to take on the Roman legion and drive them into the sea. That's the wisdom of the world. Get bigger arms, organize more fully, think more strategically, meet violence with violence and overcome it, vanquish the enemy. That's the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is to face into the mendacity of the evil systems that portray and betray us as beneath concern and the, the care and the love of God and to show by our active nonviolent resistance to that evil the true depth of that evil and so overturn it that satyagraha, as Gandhi called it in India, the nonviolent resistance to the onus of British imperial rule, the same nonviolent resistance, civil disobedience harnessed by the civil rights movement and, and promulgated most fully through the writings of Howard Thurman and Reverend Howard Thurman and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to create a different world. The foolishness of the cross. For since in the wisdom of God 
the world did not know God through wisdom. We can't just know God through the power of our intellect. It's not a product of rational reflection or speculative thinking. It is a process of experiencing the love of God. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe, those who throw themselves onto the mercy of God. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks demand wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles who make up the early church are missing the point, Paul says. Paul himself is, of course, a Jew. He's not bespurching or belittling or denying the power and the continuing validity of Judaism. He's saying that what Jesus reveals in the cross is a deeper understanding, a deeper wisdom through the foolishness, the folly of the cross. But to those who are being saved or called, Paul's interesting concept here, that we're not saved. I am saved. But salvation is an ongoing process that continues throughout our life, which is not primarily an interior, personal, individual experience, but is a communal experience in which we are saved by God, not by liberating us as individuals from this world, but rather salvation is freeing us widening God's embrace of the world so that we may live more fully, not in a narrow, self-interested cocoon where we serve ourselves, but a cocoon that opens and flies free. Not a servant of judgment, but a disciple of joy. That salvation is opening the constant movement of God to open us to the conscious understanding of ourselves as the object of God's desire, the center of God's concern, that God wants nothing more than for us to live in the conscious understanding, the mutual care and reciprocation of that unconditional love, to be freed from hate and fear, from anger and vindictiveness, to hold up the truth as an alternative to the lies which tempt us, to offer us a freedom from hatred, to see each other and treat each other as a child of God, to forgive even when it's so tempting to dine on the carefully cooked morsels of hate. But to be freed to a different way of being and living for God's foolishness 
is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is what the theologians call the Theologia Crucis, the theology of the cross. That it is through the cross that God's love is most fully revealed to us in the love of Christ who gives himself for us, for you, for me, for all the world, for all creation, for the cosmos, that we may be freed, that we are being saved. We are in the process of growing into the experience of that love of God, that salvation, to live in the conscious awareness, to live in the light of God's love. Amen.